Our epistle reading is the basis for today's sermon from Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it, for it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith, his faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Text for this morning, the reading from Romans chapter 4. Today, let's learn, or maybe relearn, or maybe simply rededicate ourselves to living on the promise of God. Our sermon series is titled Made Right, and it is drawn from the letter of one of the first followers of Jesus, a man named Paul, who wrote to the early Christian church in the city of Rome. And this letter has been acclaimed as the most comprehensive articulation of Christian doctrine, that is, the teachings that form the foundation of our faith in all of Scripture. In the opening chapter, Paul declares his thesis, his point, the one central truth that he will then spend the next 15 chapters unpacking. He writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is that good news about the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, Pentecost event, and promise coming again of Jesus. For I am not ashamed of that gospel. Paul writes, for it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Pentecost has come, 
And we've all been filled with the Holy Spirit who has created in each of us a clean heart, an awakened heart, and renewed us in us a right spirit. Last week, Jesus commanded, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple of Jesus is one whose very identity and entire purpose in life is defined by the teachings of Jesus summarized in that little phrase, the kingdom of God, which is the world made right. Starting right now through faith in Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the power of God for salvation. And please make a mental note again that salvation is not this escapist theory that someday when I die, I get to go to heaven where we just hang out here and hold on as tight as we can until we can finally get out of here. Salvation is an everyday, active, living out of a life of freedom and joy and sacrifice and renewal. So what we must deal with today is that sustaining that identity and that purpose as followers of Jesus requires a constant diligence and a continuous renewal. Because the default setting of our fallen, broken human nature is that salvation must be earned. That the good life, the best life, the life that every human being is searching for only comes to those who try their hardest and work at it nonstop. Today, let us learn or relearn or rededicate ourselves to living on the promise of God. Now to teach us, Paul is going to present a case study of a man who lived about 3,000 years before Jesus was born. Now I cannot tell you how significant and important it is that Paul chooses Abraham. Because you see, as people living 2,000 years after Jesus died and rose again, it is easy for us to assume that the people who lived before Jesus, all the way back to Adam and Eve, must have been saved, if they were saved at all, by some other way than believing in Jesus. But Paul argues that is not true. That everyone who has ever been saved 
That is, everyone who has ever discovered their identity as a dearly loved son or daughter of the one and only omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, creating and sustaining triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everyone who has ever discovered that their sole purpose in life is to live under God in his kingdom, which is the world made right, does so by believing, by having faith in Jesus. And so Paul declares, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to be righteous means to be made right. Somebody should have a sermon series with that title. Made right with God by having all of our sins forgiven, by being declared innocent, by being made perfect and holy, able to stand in the face-to-face presence of God in order to experience and enjoy what it means to be a fully human human being. So Abraham believed And it was credited to him as righteousness. So what did Abraham believe? Abraham believed in the promise. That God would send a savior who would open the kingdom of God. That's the world made right to all who will believe in that savior. Whose name we now know is Jesus. And so once again, people, we must learn or relearn or rededicate ourselves to living on that promise of God. Now, practically speaking, making it as concrete and actionable as I can, what is this believing? What is this saving faith in the promise of God by which Abraham and you and me are credited or counted as righteous, made right? Well, I suppose the first thing we should do is make it absolutely clear what saving faith is not. And as obvious as it may be from all your years of going to church and listening to sermons, we must say it again that saving faith is not faith in your own ability to be obedient in order to obey the commandments well enough in order to to please God. And yet, that is what tempts us over and over again that is what comes to us naturally to start looking at our own performance that we must somehow be reminded again today to be continuously checking our little Christian pulse to make sure that our heart is beating in rhythm with the promise not our performance Now, all of that is complicated by the fact that we happen to be living in a little teeny slice of world history, in a country that is steeped in what has been called the Puritan work ethic, namely that if you work hard and you live according to the Ten Commandments, 
then God will, no, no, more than that, God must bless you because you've earned it. I just finished a history of the building of the Panama Canal. And one of the biggest obstacles to both the French and then later the American efforts were the tropical diseases of yellow fever and malaria. And in spite of the growing evidence that there was that these diseases were transmitted by mosquitoes, it was still popularly believed and professed that only lazy, morally weak people were in danger of these diseases. Look, we instinctively believe that obedience is what saves us. Secondly, saving faith is not a partnership arrangement with God where he does the first part and now it's up to you to do the rest. And finally, saving faith is not faith in how passionately or how sincerely you believe. In other words, it's not faith in the quality of your own faith. That you sometimes hear when people say, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it. Saving faith is when you hear the promise that God created you and every other human being and this entire planet and the entire universe to be so much more than we can see now. Saving faith then lets you acknowledge as genuine and real all of the feelings that come flooding in from living in this broken mess of a world. Fear and anger and depression and sadness and profound grief. When you hear the promise that there is more to life than meets the eye, you don't need to repress those feelings. You certainly don't need to deny those feelings. And worst of all, you should not try to medicate those feelings with some or other addictive behavior of your choice. Saving faith admits that the feelings that come from living in this broken world are real and they are often overwhelming, but then it turns to focus on the facts. Now, Paul is going to spell this out in more detail in chapter 8 when he says the present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. The fact is that if God did not spare his only son, Jesus, but gave him up for us on the cross, then he will graciously carry us through every circumstance of life. Nothing can separate us from his love. You see, Jesus is the promise that we must learn and relearn and rededicate ourselves to live by. Saving faith hears that promise, 
Saving faith then focuses on the facts of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. And then finally, saving faith empowers you to entrust and to trust in the very word of God. And this one's a struggle sometimes. Because saving faith creates in you a driving force to engage in the study of the Bible. Saving faith craves to know God more and more, and the place that he has revealed himself to us is in his word, and I simply cannot do that for you in 20 minutes a week on Sunday morning. Look, there are more resources available to you right now to study the Bible than there ever have been before. Each of you is a unique learner. There is no one-size-fits-all. In fact, I discovered 10 years ago that I actually learn better by listening than by reading. So what is it that works best for you? Saving faith trusts what God says, even, even when what God says is hard. Saving faith lets you live generously instead of hoarding. Saving faith tells the truth even when it may cost you a friendship or a promotion at work. Saving faith is a trust transfer from trusting anything and everything else to trusting the promise of God who is Jesus. Abraham's life reminds us that a real life of saving faith looks like. Go read it, Genesis chapter 12 through 25. You will quickly discover his life was not perfect. His trust fluctuated, but it never gave up. Abraham was able to look at the mistakes that he made in his life and say, this is why my only hope is to trust in God's promises, to trust in Jesus. So saving faith is not perfect, although it strives every day for perfection. Saving faith clings to what God has said he will do, and that is to forgive and restore us daily and work through our joys and our failures and hardships to deepen our relationship with Him. So, are you learning? Are you relearning? Are you rededicating yourself this morning to live on the promise of God? Well, you want some hints? on how you can tell whether that's happening in your life. The first one is this. Earlier in the chapter, Paul declared that because Abraham's righteousness was credited to him by faith, not by his works or anything that he's done, he had nothing to boast about. Saving faith works to eliminate boasting from your life. Now, how can you tell? 
if you're boasting in your obedience? Well, here are some telltale signs. You have in the back of your mind that your worth ethic, how hard you work, makes you somehow superior. That your level of education or athletic prowess or success in your career or your accumulated wealth are rooted in your diligence, in your hard work, in your perseverance, in your moral integrity, in your religious conviction and practice, in your doctrinal purity. It is an attitude of, I did it, and so anybody can do it if they really try hard enough. It is an attitude that shouts to the world, oh, if you could only be more like me, then God would really love you. (laughs) The evidence of boasting in your life is having no awareness that you had absolutely nothing to do with when and where and into what circumstances you were born. To somehow imagine that you would have achieved what you have achieved should you have been born in the slums. That even over the obstacles of poverty and crime and discrimination and absence of educational opportunity, you would have still risen to that same level that you are in now. Look, we may actually know better than to go around tooting our own horns, but people, our whole worldview is steeped in pride over our own achievements. Secondly, saving faith not only eliminates this foolish boasting, this foolish way of thinking too highly of ourselves, it also overcomes the opposite. That is, thinking too little of yourself that often results in a cowering fear that if you mess up, God is going to get you. Or if something bad is happening in your life right now, that God must have abandoned you or he must be angry with you or he must not care about you rather than trusting that he is working through it to bring you closer to him. Thirdly, saving faith produces a realistic, steady, solid sense of personal worth and value. That is, you are who God says you are, and God says that you are a dearly loved, forgiven, bound for eternity in the new heaven and new earth, son or daughter of the one and only supreme being of the universe, and it doesn't get any better than that. Fourthly, that secure identity then will give you the peace that passes all understanding that nothing can snatch you out of the father's hands that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and then finally saving faith will give you hope even when hope is gone 
with the certain promise of eternal life through faith in Jesus, that begins the moment you first believe we can face our loss and our grief and still not lose hope that life here and now is worth living. The person who has saving faith can face anything and say, I still have God's promise I have Jesus, and that's enough. Amen. Now the peace that passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in this true faith unto life everlasting. Amen.